following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. It's also nice after a period of sitting to just notice the effect of the practice. One of the things that will keep us coming back to our practice, interested in our practice, is just to notice that this seemingly simple activity actually is potent. It actually changes the way the body and mind feels. You know, people spend a lot of money to change how their body, how their mind is. So it's kind of nice that this relatively simple thing called meditation makes a difference. So last week I began uh, going through a simple formula to help us remember a particular path or way of practicing. And I'll work with that again tonight and hopefully save more time for discussion. And there are many approaches to explain what we do when we sit. But it's nice, it's actually uh, maybe even essential that if you're serious about the practice, you have to be able to articulate to yourself what you're doing. It's not enough to have a wholesome but very general, vague intention. Oh yeah, I want to be present. You need to understand, uh, the mind needs to have some clarity about what that intention is about, where does it come from, what the problem is we're trying to address or solve. It doesn't need to be this sort of involved analytical process, but we have to have some way of clarifying the situation so we know how to train or work with the mind. So when there's a moment of being confused or even more likely happens quite regularly in practice, a moment of doubt, like, is this a waste of time? Would I be better off just relaxing at home? Or would I be better off, you know, doing this or doing that? And then it's, we need some sort of uh, sense of what the practice is, both in terms of our own experience and how it's been valuable. So the force of faith or confidence that this is actually relevant and useful, and then how to then pick up the pieces and reorient the mind to fit the intention or the aspiration behind the practice. So I divided the structure into just four parts to help us remember, and I kind of walked us through them tonight in the guided set. So one part that's so important, not just in formal sitting, but all through life, is developing the skill or the art of being able to settle the mind down. And there are many techniques for this. I'm sure many of you have picked up different techniques over the years. And if they work, then they work. Then use them. But uh, the basic idea is we have to discover ways to drop the world the world of our you know, 
our story of our life situation, as relevant as that is at other moments of our life, in terms of this particular process, it's not relevant. Like the story that I have about who I am and the story that the stories that I have about the problems in my life and the stories that I have about what's working well in my life and in terms of meditation, in terms of being in the moment, those stories aren't relevant. Or those stories are just thoughts. So the question, how do we drop the addiction or the attachment we have to those thoughts, to that kind of thinking. It's like a, a, a pretty radical shifting of gears or paradigm shift. We're out in the world, we're driving, we're listening to the radio, we're thinking about what happened today, we're thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow, we're thinking about our to-do list. And then, you know, we approach common ground or we approach our cushion at home or meditation chair at home, and we want to shift gears. Because otherwise, we'll come in, you know, we can look great on our meditation cushion or chair with our meditation shawl in front of our beautiful meditation altar. And we can just be worrying or planning just like we would, you know, at Starbucks with our coffee and our laptop and our iPod on and having conversation on our phone with somebody all at the same time. It could be pretty much the same, except, you know, on the outside, it, won't, it will look very different. It will look like we're being holy. <laughs> but on the inside, it isn't necessarily different. And I'm sure there are moments in our sit tonight, certainly for me, probably for most of us, moments where our mind was as worldly as it ever is, as caught up in our life stories, dramas, as it ever is. And hopefully there are other moments, too. So the beginning part of practice is having a set of techniques or rituals, actually, is a good word for it, that helps us leave that behind. You know, there's many obvious things. Like one of the nice things about coming to a place like Common Ground is we're kind of reminded, you know, as we walk in, there's sort of uh, just a sense of almost like a respect for the place where people naturally, not always, but sort of slow down a little bit. You know, people tend to be kind in our little tiny entranceway, you know. People sort of are patient with one another, mindful of where they put their boots, mindful to protect the floors. You know, and we use hushed voices in the lobby. So all of that is a part of, uh, you know, just it helps remind us, oh yeah, this is a little different. And coming here, and, and generally before program, we, we're not talking in the room. We settle down. We take care of the body. And then the the ritual we use tonight that you can continue to work with if it works for you is just some deep breathing. Some nights it might be just two or three breaths, but other days, you know, when your mind has more going on, more momentum to the self-centered dramas, then you might need to do something really concrete for a little bit longer, like five, ten minutes of deep breathing. Or for some people, doing some walking meditation before the sitting meditation might be good. Where you're using a more... The thing about this settling ritual generally is it's a very concrete activity that makes it easier for the mind to absorb into it. Because the way we drop the world isn't by shaking it off. Because shaking off the world, in a way, amplifies it. 
If we have to shake it off, it must be something real. So the way we prove to, to the mind, the way the mind proves to itself that the world can be abandoned is it absorbs into something ordinary. You know, that's how we know that this drama that's, that I'm obsessing about, the only way we convince the mind that it isn't as big as it appears to be is we pay attention to shutting the car door or pay attention to breathing in. Because if this thing really is life or death, we're not going to pay attention to shutting the door or breathing in, breathing out, right? So when we come and we train the mind over time to breathe in deeply and fully and really take our time, well, we're sort of manifesting that this sort of the heart, the body is manifesting uh, freedom from having to rush, freedom from having to think. And it's a pretty concrete activity. So if we're actually completely committed to breathing in, we can't be thinking about anything else, worrying about this, planning that, remembering something. We can't do two things at once, actually, in the mind. I mean, we can go back and forth, but to the degree we really give ourselves to some walking practice or some settling practice, like the deep breathing we did tonight, we're kind of reminding the mind that it's possible to drop the world. And we start getting some effect from that dropping. So just walking into the space, using hushed voices, slowing down, settling the body, taking a few minutes or longer to do some deep, full breathing, filling the lungs, emptying the lungs, is in a sense a big affront to all of our self-centered dramas. Because we're saying, you know, we're not just saying, we're manifesting in the moment that we don't need to be obsessing. We don't need to be worrying, planning, judging, remembering. And the effect is the freedom of not doing that. That's what the heart feels. So just keep this in mind, like when you create your own ritual at home, you know, if you're a morning sitter or an evening sitter, remember you want something concrete, some rituals, con concrete rituals to lead you into the practice. Some people like to bow. You know, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. You can bow down to the practice or you can bow down to whatever sort of helps you leave behind the world, the world of your sort of mundane concerns. And just see what that feels like in the mind. See if that actually helps. And then the next stage of practice, once we the mind has experience some break from sort of the momentum of our usual worldly concerns. We're not going to get a, cre a free, complete break, like the world's gone. <laughs> no more thoughts about today or yesterday or tomorrow. Just blue sky in the mind, empty blue sky. It's probably not going to happen. But we, we, can, we can get some break. And then, and then to sort of develop that, we remember our aspiration. If we're still caught up in our worldly concerns, the aspiration or the, the, the intention is going to be colored by the anxiety or the fear or the greediness 
in the mind. We'll turn our spiritual aspiration into just another uh, thing for the ego. So we want some sense of relief before we reflect on our deepest aspiration. Because what we really want, our aspiration, we want this sort of intuitive or this deep sense of peace. Now, it's going to, every person here is going to articulate their intention or aspiration differently. But it's going to have this flavor of release or freedom or peace. And so it's like we want to we want to sort of connect with something that's resonant. But if our mind is really superficial and busy and caught, we're not going to connect with something deep and resonant. So we do the settling. And then we, in a sense, we uh, identify or um, acknowledge, ah, yeah, this is what's really important. Not something idealistic, not some conceptual notion of me having a good life, me getting what I want, but we're connecting with something that, even if it's faint, that we feel right here and now is of real value. This is what's relevant. This is what I aspire to uncover in this life, this sense of peace, this sense of love, this sense of wholeness. You know, so however you can articulate it, the words you use in your mind are just in the service of clarifying what you're feeling in the moment. So we want to do some of this work at the beginning of our set after we've settled down. It doesn't need to be long. You know, just a couple moments sometimes, maybe a minute or two. But it doesn't really need to be very long. Oh, yeah. This is what's relevant. And it's not saying no to the world, not no to sort of our ambitions in the world. It's just putting them in perspective. So like if we want to do something really good in the world, we're an artist and we want to sort of express some ideas, sure our artistic vision in the world, or we're a parent and we want to raise good kids, or we're, you know, whatever, then everything in terms of our, you know, self-centered thinking, all of that then is sort of in perspective coming out of this aspiration. It doesn't contradict this aspiration to be whole or to be loving or to be peaceful. So that if we do have, you know, want to save the world ambitions, then it's like, in being peaceful, I commit myself to saving the world, you know, turning around global warming or something like that. So it doesn't, we can have a really big vision, uh, ambition in terms of our sort of ego, body, mind in the world. Doesn't, doesn't mean we have to sort of give up all of that, but it's just now under the umbrella of this deep aspiration that it has to do with love or kindness or compassion or wholeness or peace or something some something resonant and something that uh, uh, is appropriate no matter how our life unfolds. So for example, if we connect with some sense of, of, of uh, inclusivity and love, like unconditional kindness and love, that that's really the aspiration. Then you see, well, that that flavor, that commitment to that quality of heart or mind 
can go anywhere, whether we decide to be parents or not, whether we decide to be involved in the world or to be a hermit, whether we decide to be in an intimate relationship or single. It doesn't really, those things don't really matter. And of course, this work on our aspiration is something we want to do throughout the day, just like the settling. Once we develop this art of settling down, especially if you use like a ritual like deep breathing, but then any time during the day you can take a deep breath and it sort of triggers this training you've been doing throughout your formal practice over the years. The same thing with bringing up, connecting with this resonant aspiration. You can do it throughout the day. And the work you do formally every time you sit then gets activated throughout the day when you remember your aspiration. That's the point. The formal work we do in our sitting practice, we really want to touch into it throughout the day as often as we can remember, really. And then the bulk of our sit, as I mentioned last week, is a particular training. We're training the mind. We're not just allowing the mind to be because our minds are pretty much neurotic in the sense of Our minds, for the most part, are captivated by our self-centered thinking. There is self-centered thinking, and our minds have a tendency to get blinded by the self-centered thinking. So we have a thought about me or about you, about being good or being bad, or about you being good or bad, and all the different variations of that. And then being blinded by it, you know, the habit of the mind is, in a sense, to get contracted or constricted by self-centered drama, self-centered thinking. You get lost in it, and it sort of defines our universe. So the training is to go beyond that habit. And the way we, the, the basic formula, at least in this lineage of practice, is what we call mindfulness. Mindfulness of things as they actually are. So it's not that thinking is itself a problem, it's being confused by the content of the thoughts that's the problem. So usually we begin with something like in the settling process at the beginning. You know, initially the training we use something concrete like the sensations of the body or the sensations of the breath. But now I'm not trying to make the breath really concrete by breathing in deeply, exhaling deeply, but just allow the breath to express itself naturally. In a sense, we let the body do the breathing. But what we're learning to do, the training is, see, the mind wants to analyze the breath or compare the breath, but we're learning to connect with sensation, the the present moment, not to get lost in the interpretation of the present moment or the image we have about the breath, but to actually feel the movement in the body, like I mentioned, the movement of the belly, the rising and falling of the abdomen or feeling the touching sensations as the air goes in and out of the nostrils. So, and that connecting, we drop the world of thought or the world of self-centered thought, and then we release any reactivity that will arise because that's the habit of the mind. So, of course, I'm just dividing these into two things, but we're really doing them at the same time. We're connecting and releasing at the same time. Or we're opening to the way things are and releasing, letting go of any reactivity. Anything that's in the way of being present, anything that's in the way of connecting, connecting and releasing. 
over and over again. And you can use different meditation words to help sustain this recollection because it's easy to forget that we're training the mind. Right? <laughs> did you notice? I did. You know, I find my, found myself several times thinking about things, thinking about the problems in my life, things I need to solve, things I need to figure out. So the, the basic uh, force of this training is to be willing to start over and over and over again. So we notice that we're caught up in our usual activity, worldly activity, we could say. Then we just remember, oh yeah, I'm meditating. Meditation is a training. I'm training the mind. Okay, feel the body. Drop into the body. Use the sensations of sitting, the sensations of breathing. As See, we have to give the mind something to do in order to let go of what it's already doing, the worrying, the planning, the thinking. So we give the mind something to do. And you can even use meditation words like just this, you know, or connecting. So thinking isn't inherently bad. Thinking that leads to more thinking is what we call unskillful. Thinking that leads to the abandoning of thinking or the, the uh, sort of diminishing of thinking is called skillful thinking. So when we have a thought, oh, that's just thoughts. Well, that's a skillful thought. And if we have the thought, oh, yeah, well, that's not skillful because it's pulling us in to the, the cycles of thinking, getting lost, absorbed into the story themselves. So, so much of the this art of training the mind is willing to start over again. And starting over again, it's really nice to have, this is what I meant at the beginning, it's nice to ha- be able to quickly articulate the mind should know very clearly what it needs to do with the training. Because it's very easy, I'm sure you've noticed, those of you who've been practicing for a while, it's very easy for doubt to come in. Should I do this with the mind or should I do this with the mind? Am I being a good meditator or am I a bad meditator? Should I give up? You know, should I beat myself up? So it's like the mind gets into the speculation and doubt and comparing which is just thinking, lost in self-centered drama. So one of the ways to combat that tendency to get sucked back into self-centered drama over and over again is to be very clear about what you're doing. And if you don't, if you don't have clarity, then you can talk to somebody who has more experience than you, read a book, and just follow some basic instruction until you have some of your own intuitive sense of how you should be practicing. And you feel like you can make uh, kind of clear decisions, not during your sit, but before the sit. Okay, this is, this is how I'm going to train the mind. I'm going to work with the sensations of the breath. I'm going to work with the sensations of the breath at the nostrils. When other predominant experience comes up, I'm going to clearly acknowledge, now I'm paying attention to this. And then when that's no longer predominant, I'm going to come back to my anchor, the breath at the nostrils. I'm going to practice connecting with the sensations as sensation, not as thought, not as a mental image of the in-breath, but as the actual touching sensation here at the nostrils, for example. And then I'm going to remember as I'm connecting with the sensation, I'm also releasing or relaxing 
the need to do anything more than just simply know the sensations. That's what the other, you know, in the particular technique that I offer tonight, using the word releasing with the exhalation, which is just a strategy. It's just a reminder that connecting or knowing the present moment experience is enough. We don't have to do more than that. There's nothing we need to do with the knowing. It's just making the mind very clear and simple leads to everything that we need to set in motion. Because the whole path of practice is more about the mind abandoning than about the mind getting something. So we're developing, we're using technique or strategies to help the mind abandon what's unnecessary, what's extra basically all self-centered activity. So we're connecting and we're releasing. And then we're learning that with that basic strategy, then when heavy-duty stuff arises, painful memories, a lot of unfinished business, some anxiety about the future, difficult sensations in the knee, then we're using exactly the same strategy, the same training. But now, of course, it's going to be more challenging because the intensity of the experience has been amped up. But really, it's the same. Oh, now it's like this. Connecting and releasing anything extra. And then if it's a difficult experience, mostly what we're releasing is the impulse to defend ourselves. So whenever we have a strong, like a painful memory or painful sensations, immediately, because of the habit of the mind, the mind will assume there's somebody who needs to be defended from this intense experience. And it won't even bother to look after, uh, to see if there's actually somebody there that needs to be defended. It's just going to assume there is, and it's going to come on very strong with some defense. And the, the way the mind defends itself, the way the conditioned, self-centered mind defends itself is it tightens up. You know? We do this with joy, but when there's a lot of joy and we feel a little overwhelmed by the pleasantness of the moment, we get tight. And when there's a lot of unpleasantness and we don't know what to do with that, we get tight. The mind or heart basically has the conditioned mind, the sort of ignorant mind or usual mind, has really only one strategy. When in doubt, get tight. And then it gets addictive because that sense of being a little tight over time becomes synonymous with feeling real. Like, oh yeah, that's me. I'm here. I'm living. I'm alive. We feel alive because we feel tight. This is this great paradox in practice. The more we practice, there are, few, uh, there are more moments where we don't feel tight. And it gets a little disconcerting because we wonder, oh, I must not be practicing because I, I don't feel real. The feeling of not feeling tight takes it sort of an acquired taste. It's like it's why in Buddhism we use words like emptiness. It's emptiness of this self-centered drama, emptiness of a congealed mind. Things are really simple and in a sense pure. The pure because of simplicity, not pure in a sense like uh, some beautiful uh, idealistic transcendent thing has arisen in the mind. But it's more about what's not there. It's so simple. 
So this is the thing with challenging experience. Now, sometimes challenging experience is just feeling bored, boredom, or sleepiness can be a really challenging experience, or restlessness. So it's not even so much about a particular thing, like a, a worry we have in the mind or pain in the body. It's just a generic, pervasive sense of restlessness or dullness in the mind. But it's really, the, it's always the same practice. Can we connect, can the heart open to it completely and release anything extra? Connecting and releasing. And this is what transforms problems. So this is, this is the real crux of the training. We work with our anchor until something strong, intense arises. And then by definition, we don't have a choice. We have to work with whatever's arisen in our experience because it would create a lot of tension to ignore it. So we, in a sense, willingly say yes to any distraction or any obstacle that's arisen as we're sitting there in our meditation with our one strategy of connecting and releasing into the experience, realizing it's possible to some degree, given our particular skill and confidence in this moment, it's possible to be present, to be at ease, to be undefended with this. To some degree, more than, for, ha for example, we'd be out in the world when we don't have this sort of momentum of sitting that we get when we're doing our sitting practice. And that's the basic training that we engage. And like I mentioned earlier, there are many kind of ways to sort of shape this into meditation strategies, not just the one that I gave tonight or the ones that we use here at Common Ground. There are many ways. But the Buddha was very clear when people asked, you know, do other people who don't you know, follow your teachings do they get enlightened? And the Buddha, you know, and he was asked that question in, at different times in different ways. You know, basically people, they're kind of, it sounded like you're being a little nudgy, like, you know, do you got to be a Buddhist? Do you have to be a follower of you to get enlightened? And, and the Buddha was very clear in many different uh, talks or interactions that he had that it always comes down to one thing. There's There will be... Uh, the uh, sort of catalyst for freedom is always going to be the same. A very clear, simple mind connecting with things as they are and not clinging, not reacting. That will always be the catalyst for freedom, whether they're following this set of teachings or that set of teachings. If there's this element, then it's an authentic path. If, it, if there isn't this element about not clinging, being clear and not clinging, then it, it won't be a helpful, ultimately it won't be a helpful path. So like when, you know, a lot of people here in this room have uh, experience in other spiritual and religious traditions. And this is helpful to kind of distill like what actually works in spiritual life. And you can see that there are different ways to language it. It doesn't have to be languaged like the Buddha languages it. You know, the Buddha uses very psychological terms and talking about the spiritual path. Other traditions, you know, they use terms, symbolic terms, metaphorical terms, relevant or specific to that tradition, that culture. But it all comes down to this wholehearted presence, 
openness and the not clinging. That's the nothing extra, releasing anything extra. Kind of nakedness of the heart or mind. I was saying at the end of the Qigong class this morning, some of you were there, we do a little heart gesture where we hold our hands at the end just out here. And I, I reminded us all about this image. Most of you are sure know this, like in uh, especially the Eastern Orthodox uh, Christian Church, um, but other sort of Catholic and Christian traditions. They have the saints or Jesus or Mary sort of with the heart sitting out three or four inches from the body, sort of this sort of raw, exposed heart, you know, and often it's sort of shown with some radiance. And that's kind of a nice, I like that image. You know, I was raised a Catholic, and uh, I had a statue of, uh, I guess it was maybe St. Joseph was the one who had his heart sort of sitting out, you know, in my ceramic statue that I had next to my bed when I was a kid. And I like that sort of, kind of, it was like both, it had different qualities. Like the, it was very beautiful. I mean, they made the, the radiance, made it look like, well, wow, this is beautiful. But it also had a quality of vulnerability, like total exposure to have something sort of sitting out like that. It's a little bit a uh, beautiful image for our practice, I think, that mindfulness is this very precious, exposed way of being in the world. We're developing this profound kind of sensitivity that there's a real power in being more and more sensitive. In order to be fully sensitive in the world, we have to learn the art of non-grasping, of releasing. Because if we have kids and we really connect with our love for our children, it will destroy us if we can't also let go, understanding that we're not in total control. If you love this planet and you really want the earth not to be destroyed, if all you are is sensitive to all the different insults to the planet, you will, your heart will be broken and you will get sick and die. So we have to be able to be sensitive to what's true, but we have to let go. We have to let go of the arrogance that we're in control. We can love, but we can't be in control. We can act in the world, but we have to let go of what's going to happen because we're not in charge of what's going to happen. doesn't mean we can't participate. We should participate, but we have to let go. And then, so the art of meditation is really just distilling that to what we do in the moment, really getting it in its essence so we can live it out in all the different situations we have in the world where basically we're doing the same thing. We're connecting and we're releasing. We're connecting with our friends and we're releasing the tendency to judge them, to want to hold on to them, not wanting them to change, wanting them to become other than they are. We release all of that the connection, and then the releasing. We see something in ourselves that we love. We connect. We see that goodness in ourselves, and we release any attachment, any sense that I'm better than others or something. Or we see something despicable in ourselves, and we connect with that, and we release any judgment, any sort of self-hatred. And the more we work with that, then we end up being able to touch into the last part of practice, the fourth part, which is understanding, it's an awakening really, that the training isn't our business even. 
So when we're training, you know, it, it feels like really relevant work to remember to connect, to remember to release, to let go. But then we start having moments where we recognize that even, even this sense that I have to do this work is too much. We even have to release that. So that's sort of why we, I created this sort of fourth part of the practice where we're dropping, we're learning to drop the sense of ownership. So we even drop, like, so what I would recommend in, term of your, in terms of your formal sitting time, to save a couple minutes at the end of the sit at least, where you drop the idea that you're sitting there meditating. So you just let go of that idea that you've got a, a skillful means, you've got a ritual or a technique that you're engaging. You just drop that. And you're allowing life to unfold. That's it. So one teacher calls this non-distracted, non-meditation. So you're seeing that the connecting and the releasing itself can be the natural movement of the heart. Does it need to be something that some sense of mark has to be doing in the moment? And again, it's just an exploration. You might do that, and then your whole practice might fall apart because maybe there's not enough momentum. So as soon as you stop trying to meditate, you go right back into self-centered thinking and get lost in this and that. And then that's okay. You, you've learned an important lesson. You don't need to feel like it was a mistake. You can come back again and again for the you know whatever remaining time you have. Just let go. Just let things be. But you might find, you might open to even a deeper kind of confidence in the heart how, how unnecessary it is to sort of project a mark who's responsible, who's in control, who has to be good, how that can be extra. And just the relief in moments that we feel when we don't, when we don't have that center, don't need that center. So we have about 15 minutes. It would be nice to hear from people, both people who are brand new at practice, but many of you have been practicing for a couple of you for several decades, more, even more. It would be nice to hear from people about how your practice relates to these four arts, four aspects of meditation training, or any questions that you have, or whatever seems relevant. So what comes to mind? Yeah. Is it Ryan? Yeah. I have a question just from going to years I've been practicing meditation. One of the things, no matter how much sleep I get, I'm sitting there and I settle in the mind and I'm just kind of sitting there meditating, just feeling the presence of my breath. It relaxes my body so much that I start to worry all I'm like, you know, fall asleep. What? What? Because I also know that I, you know, I've had times over here like where I had a coffee about a couple hours earlier and you're so wired and you can't. Down. I kind of, how do I get into that nice medium where I'm just selling the mind but I'm not going to bed? Yeah. yeah. Well, there, part of the art is really understanding where energy comes from. And the energy comes from getting close to the source. I mean, that's those are just words, but getting close to the essence of things. Because that connection is, in a, in a sense, defined by 
energy or kind of uh, aliveness. So the connecting is the key. So if you're getting a lot of drowsiness, besides the obvious things of getting enough sleep and you know uh, maybe working on uprightness in the posture, it's really um, encouraging the mind in different ways, skillful ways, to be uh, more connected, more interested in what you're connecting. So it's not a mechanical process. Just like, so let's use a mundane situation. So you're out in the world and you meet somebody who's really interesting to you. And, uh, you know, just think about how energizing that would be. So you're there, you know, on the bus stop, and you meet somebody, and he or she is just, you know, just like feels like a beautiful, powerful connection. And you, would, you wouldn't get sleepy in that moment. You would feel very alive in that moment. You know, wow, you know, I'm so happy to have connected with this person. I mean, and we can have that same energy release when we connect with the present moment. That w- there's something in the way, which is our thought that I already know this moment. And that thought, which we don't notice because it's so habitual, really keeps us apart from the moment, keeps us from connecting. So the art of connecting is to go beyond our preconceived ideas. And we need to, even even in a really sort of preliminary way, we want to have some confidence or faith that the present moment is not what it appears to be. It's like we want to have some sense that everything holy and beautiful and real is here. (laughs) Where else could it be? And the only thing keeping this heart from that is all of our arrogant ideas of how we think this moment is. So then this will encourage kind of the development of the art of connecting or opening, you could say, to what's real. And you'll, you know, if you reflect on moments in your life when, for whatever reason, we were shocked into that kind of openness. Like sometimes tragedies will do this to us. Some of us, not necessarily, I don't know if tragedy is the right word, but many of you know that our good friend Rini Howard died a couple of weeks ago. And even though it was a, a gradual process, we were aware that she was dying. Still, the fact that... Uh, my wife said, when Fricky said last night at our board meeting, you know, she was there and now she's not there. And there's, uh, there's something shocking about that. And it kind of wakes us up in a way. Just that, remembering that, you know, this person was there and now she's not there. And so there are different events in our life that sort of naturally lead to the heart or mind connecting just naturally connecting. Everything feels alive with energy. It's the certainty in the mind that makes us sleepy. It's the absence of certainty that wakes us up. And so when you have, when you notice certainty in your mind, then you want to be, you want to realize that there's a strong filter that puts us to sleep one way or another, puts us to sleep. Yeah, thanks, thanks Ryan for that. Other thoughts people have? Yeah, I forgot your name. Yeah, well, um, you talked earlier about how you, how, about judgment, how you can judge yourself when you're meditating and say, am I doing it right? Should I beat myself up now? Should I be doing this? How do you overcome that? Yeah. 
Yeah, remember, the, the fortunate thing is the strategy is always the same. So if you're doing the particular technique, then as you breathe in the next time, you're recognizing that there's judgment in the mind. And in a sense, you're learning how to connect with it as a natural phenomenon. So when the mind judges, you're not connecting with the content of the judgment. You know, I'm judging this person. I think this about this person, or I think this about me. But you're actually connecting with the shape of the mind, or the texture of the mind, or the texture of the heart, energetic feeling that is associated with the, the experience of judgment. So you're connecting with it. You're opening to it. You're allowing it to be. And you're releasing, meaning you're trusting that this natural phenomena of judging is allowed to express itself in the space of the mind, to let it be. This is what frees up the mind. It's not going away from the judgment. It's going into the judgment. But sometimes experiences are so intense that we're not able to really do this kind of work. <clears throat> and we need to do some kind of skillful retreat or escape. You know, So we might change the attention. So if there's a lot of judgment, and let's say we've been spinning with it for a while, and let's say now it's just not judgment, it's self-hatred. And the mind has got a lot of momentum in that unwholesome pattern. Well, we might not be able to open. The, the pain involved, the intensity and contraction involved, there might not be enough confidence in the mind to completely connect and release with that. So you might need to open to hearing for a while, even open the eyes. So you're still sitting in your posture. But in order to come back into the present moment, to basically reassure the mind that it's, it's safe to connect, we might need to first just connect with sitting in the space, sitting in the space of hearing sounds, just coming into the present moment and remembering it's safe to connect, it's safe to release. You know, and then once we remember that safety and kind of reignite the faith that we have in being present, then if that judgment is still going on there in the background, then we can, in a sense, invite it back in and bring that same openness or accepting attitude, releasing attitude to that reverberation of judgment, that quality of judgment. So it's not that we can always just open to distractions or difficulties that arise in practice. Sometimes we need to escape, even for periods of time. There may be times when, in the course of practice, a lot of unfinished business comes up. And there's just a lot of pain, a lot of terror, a lot of self-doubt a lot of physical, energetic pain. And we're just not able to open to it. So our practice may be more about sort of um, orbiting the pain, but not getting too close to it, because it's overwhelming. And so we're just finding ways to keep the mind balanced, finding ways to bring joy into the mind, seeing what's beautiful, bringing up loving kindness, bringing up compassion, until we feel like there's these inner resources of calm, faith, uh, sort of spaciousness or wisdom to actually turn toward these sort of more challenging states that can defi will definitely come at different times in practice, not just once, in waves. And then it's easy for a while, and then there'll be waves of difficult stuff, and then it's easy. For some people, it comes in like little bits, a little bit here, a little bit there. Other people, sort of big stuff for a long time, and then cruising for a while, and then big stuff for a long time, 
and then cruising. So it's different for different folks. The thoughts, yeah. Your name? Uh, Jeff. Um, one thing that you, you say a lot that I found really helpful in those moments is um, this is how it is now. Oh, this is how it is. I hear your voice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Obviously, other people do too. And um, that, it's almost like there's this wiser, gentler, kind of caring person inside who's saying, oh, this is how it is. And that part of me is compassionate for the part of me that is in pain yeah. and struggling. And and I think I feel, oh, this is how it is. It hurts. Or I'm afraid. Thank you so much for sharing that. It was really powerful. And these phrases or these different sort of skillful means, what they do is they activate wisdom that's already there. It sort of allows, it's a a way to bring the wisdom up into the moment. And uh, so it's, it's not like you're accessing somebody else. You're using a phrase you've heard or even for some people an image. It won't even be a word. And it just activates something that already has momentum. And uh, it's a very yeah, important way of practicing. Wisdom and compassion, really the same thing. Because wisdom and compassion is just the natural capacity to the mind to be present, radically present. And wisdom will always have the flavor of compassion or kindness. And kindness and compassion will always have the capacity to be close. And that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is the capacity to be real, to be close with things as they are. In Buddhism, wisdom is synonymous with being in alignment with Dhamma, the way it is. That's what wisdom. You can't be close to the way it is. The heart can't be in alignment with the way it is without wisdom. When our heart is in alignment with the way it is, we're wise. There's nothing else. There's no wisdom beyond that wisdom. It's all about alignment or coming or intimacy. Thanks, Jennifer. Time for one more comment, probably. Somebody else has a thought to share with the group. Yeah. Caroline? I'm Kristen. Kristen, sorry. Oh, I just wanted to And if you like this four-step approach, it's really relevant to just, I mean, appropriate to go home and to just write down settling, aspiration, training, trusting, or uh, effortlessness, or some word to kind of capture that sort of letting go of the doer, the meditator. And then every few months, 
you might just write a few sentences what each of those stages mean. Like you do it now, based on your understanding now, but then you rewrite it in two months or three months. Okay, settling, this is what I do to settle. This is what I do to recall. This is what I mean by my aspiration. This is how I train my mind. Now, not everyone here needs to, aren't, you know, they're not the type to write it down. But I think uh, Kristen's point is it's important because it is easy to go on automatic pilot. And uh, there's a certain, there's a real place for intelligence and in practice. We want to know what we're doing. And, uh, and, but we want, and we don't want to be a parrot. We don't want to, like, it would be very easy for you to memorize what I said tonight. I mean, not all of it. <laughs> but, you know, you could mem- But that's not going to help. What's going to help is for it to be real for you, like for you to have to articulate it in your own words, what you do when you sit. That's what's really important. So, for example, you might take the first five minutes of your sit for the next few days, and you just go, okay, Mark said four points. Let me just see if that's relevant. Okay, I'm going to settle. What does that mean for me? And you just sort of articulate, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Okay, and then I'm going to bring up my intention. What is that? And you just reflect for a few moments. And you go, and then I'm going to train my mind. What am I going to do with that? And then right at the end, before I get up, I'm going to take a couple minutes. I'm going to practice my practice not letting my meditation be just another self-centered activity. I'm going to drop the doing for a while and just be, just let things be. And just articulate or get some visceral sense of what that will feel like. And then you got it. And then you just begin. And then you operationalize it. You know, you actually do the settling. And, the, and you and through trial and error, you'll get better. And you'll get clearer about what that means. In a way, the whole spiritual path is learning to understand what the spiritual path is. It's like, I can't tell you how many times it's happened to me, you know, always thinking I'm one of those people who has generally a lot of confidence always thinking I understand the path, and then realizing in little sort of insights along the way, oh, that's interesting. What I thought then is different than what I think now. You know, it's like, oh, now this is what I'm doing. This is what my path is about. You know, and then that has happened so many times. And so this is actually how we, you know, when we look back at our practice, this is what we see is that our understanding of what we're doing is being transformed. That's actually the heart of practice, is understanding what it is we're doing. Until we understand, you know, as that said in the Buddhist text, you know, done is what needs to be done. You know? But until then, we're just sort of getting perspective on, oh, this is what's been going on. Now it's, you know, sort of waking up to the practice itself, what the practice is and what it's not. And we'll pick it up one more week while we're going through this. So let's just take a second, let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.